Greetings, everyone. This is Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds. Before jumping into our feature today, two quick programmatic notes. First, if you're looking for my response to the latest Star Trek Discovery episode, Terra Firma Part 1, I will be giving my usual thoughts and more as a guest on a different podcast this week, Infinite Diversity, a Star Trek Universe podcast. Please find Infinite Diversity wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe so you'll be notified as soon as that episode drops. Second, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a really good chance that you enjoy thinking about the future, especially a future where we have to contend with the fact that we're not alone in the universe. I'm happy to share that I was recently on the critically acclaimed show Flash Forward, a podcast about possible and not-so-possible futures, hosted by the incredible Rose Eveleth. On this episode, titled Is Anybody Out There?, fellow experts and I talk about looking for signs of life in the universe, what the heck is happening in Venus's atmosphere, and how the world might change if we did find alien life, or if they found us. I highly encourage you to check out Flash Forward. It's a fantastic production, you won't be disappointed, and I've put a link to that episode in the show notes for you. And speaking of finding world-changing things, if you found Strange New Worlds through Flash Forward and are joining us here for the very first time, welcome aboard! It's so good to have you. So Strange New Worlds is about the intersection of science and Star Trek, but every once in a while we expand our horizons into culture and history. Today on Strange New Worlds, we are tackling the topics of racial justice and protest movements using two episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine to fuel the discussion. The episodes are Far Beyond the Stars and Past Tense, and I guess it's technically three episodes because Past Tense is a two-parter, but if you like, you can pause the podcast right here and go watch them or re-watch them. These are excellent, powerful Star Trek episodes. But if you don't want to do that, no worries at all. I'll give a quick recap of each of those episodes when the time comes. Now, to have this discussion, it is my great pleasure to welcome Black and Jewish filmmaker and writer Rebecca Pierce to the show. Rebecca is an affiliate fellow at the Harvard Divinity School's Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative, and an alumna of UC Santa Cruz's Film and Digital Media Program. Through her storytelling, she spreads awareness of social justice issues ranging from prisons to refugees to gender violence to environmental justice. We are so lucky to have Rebecca with us. And so, without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Rebecca Pierce, it's wonderful to be reunited with you, and welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thanks so much for having me. So you and I go all the way back to our kindergarten class, believe it or not, at Ohlone Elementary School. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sadly, we sort of lost touch after our K through 12 days. But uh, recently, I had the chance to find out about all of your really awesome work that you're doing through your new podcast called Diasperse, which you co-host with Dayson Oka, who's a historian and who has been on Strange New Worlds in the past. So let's start with Diasperse. Um, can you tell us about what this new project is all about? So Dason and I also know each other since kindergarten. All three of us were in the same kindergarten class. And um, we had this similar thing of, you know, being friends when we were kids and sort of moving apart in our lives. And then after a certain point, you know, after college, we realized that we were both working on these issues of, you know, complicated hidden histories and racial justice and social justice issues that are really difficult to discuss. You know, Dason is working on Cold War and World War II memory in the Pacific. I'm working a lot on racial justice in the US and also Israel and Palestine. 
And we thought it would be so cool to kind of try to find a way to, to combine our talents, you know, me as a media person, him as a historian, to, you know, come together to tell these stories and sort of try to foster the global perspective that we were really lucky to be given as kids going to this very progressive elementary school that we all went to. And so, yeah, the idea of diaspersed, and it's kind of a play on these two words, diaspora and disperse, was just to sort of like try and spread the information that we're able to pick up through our work to each other's audiences and communities and to sort of like, let's get the people who are really into US racial justice or talking about Israel and Palestine to look at Asia a little bit more carefully or the other way around. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of that. And um, Diaspora is actually, it's a podcast, it's also a video production company. So we're working on documentaries together. Yeah, that sounds really fantastic. And I've learned so much already in just the two episodes that you have uh, put out so far. So I'm looking forward to continuing to listen. Now, in addition to being a podcaster, you're also a writer and a filmmaker, and um, you're an activist. So I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the biggest issues that you are most passionate about raising awareness of. So right now, my one of my big major documentary projects is my first feature-length film, which covers the issues of African refugees in Israel. And these are folks from Sudan and Eritrea, mostly Christian and Muslim, who, you know, there are a number of different routes you can take when you're fleeing these countries. Both of these countries have very high rates of being accepted as refugees. And these folks ended up going, crossing the Sinai into Israel instead of going the Mediterranean route that a lot of us are familiar with. And so my documentary is really about these refugee communities in Israel trying to stay in the country when they're facing, you know, mass incarceration, um, a deportation plan that the Israeli prime minister put forward, and also a lot of racial incitement um, that's happening in Israel against them as black people who are also non-Jewish in a Jewish state. And um, the sort of story this documentary is telling is really about the struggle of the Israeli-Palestinian and African communities working together to try and keep these folks from being deported against you know, the right-wing politicians that are trying to divert them. And I think that while this story is very specific to Israel and Palestine, we are facing the exact same issues here in the US and so is Europe. Um, and countries all around the world are sort of in this position of far right politicians inciting against people of all communities and backgrounds, but especially the most vulnerable like refugees. And it's up to all of us to try and fight back in our different communities. So this is for me, a really specific story that ties into a global struggle we all have against far right incitement against the the most vulnerable. That sounds like a really really cool project, and I can't wait for the documentary to come out. Can I ask, sort of like when, what stage it's in? Um, is it something yeah. we're going to be seeing soon? Hopefully. Um, so we're in the post production stage. I've done about eighty percent of the shooting. I would like to do a little bit more shooting. Um, I'm I just completed a course through the Sundance Institute that is about supporting documentary filmmakers like me in doing our post-production space. So I'm about, probably a third of the film is edited right now. And we're hoping for maybe to do, to take it to film festivals in late 2021 or early 2022. Awesome. Well, best of luck with that project. Thank you. So Rebecca, I also know that you are a big Star Trek fan. Um, can you tell us about how you first encountered Star Trek and what role it's played in shaping your life? So both my parents are Trekkies and I grew up watching Star Trek. I remember some of my first memories of my mom and dad are watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, Picard was actually my first crush, I think. <laughs> um, I was really young. I didn't even know what like a crush was. I just knew I really liked Picard and like wanted to either get to hang out with him or like kind of be him. Mm -hmm. And my mom, I have a like picture of him that my mom turned into like a fake Valentine's Day card when I was a kid because I was just like so enamored with Picard. I also grew up watching DS9 and Voyager. And for me, DS9 in particular really stuck out for me. And, you know, I'm this very sort of political person today. And part of it's my parents being two civil rights attorneys. And part of it, I think, is also watching Star Trek DS9, where um, it was sort of modeled for me that the world was a much more complicated place than we would like to assume, even when we're being very idealistic, like you might see in maybe, you know, the next generation or the original series. And so for me, DS9 was kind of this compass growing up, I remember just always kind of returning to like lessons that I learned from it and the sort of thoughts it provoked early on, I think are thoughts that I'm continuing to kind of run with in my career to this day. 
Yeah, that's so true, right? Deep Space Nine is that Star Trek series that really um, dispels this myth of, oh yeah, the Federation is this perfect place and we're out there just, you know, exploring the final frontier, blah, 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 with no internal issues. But Deep Space Nine really tackles them head on in some really, really beautiful stories. Yeah. Um, and, and I can tell, you know, I've turned to the right person today because, uh, you know, we are here to talk about the intersection of Star Trek and racial justice and the intersection of Star Trek and protest movements and how Star Trek views the past and the present and the future in terms of social justice and racial equality. So before diving into all of that, I, I just want to explicitly acknowledge that this episode of Strange New Worlds is totally motivated by the events of this year, the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and many other Black individuals who were tragically killed in the United States in 2020, uh, and the ensuing Black Lives Matter protests. Um, so as you all know, this is primarily a science and Star Trek podcast, but after all that's happened, I really wanted to do an episode that deals head on with these social issues because they're important an important part of Star Trek, and they're an important part of the fabric of America. Um, thing is, I'm not an expert in this, so that's why I've called upon the services of you, Rebecca, to help me out. Um, and first, I kind of just want to begin with a broad question about Black representation in Star Trek. You know, in the original series, we had Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols, who famously gave hope to so many Black Americans. And then in uh, TNG, we had LeVar Burton, and then Avery Brooks portrayed the first Black captain, Captain Sisko, on Deep Space Nine. And now we have Michael Burnham, the first Black woman lead on a Star Trek show in Star Trek Discovery. So Rebecca, how do you see the evolution of Black representation on Star Trek? So Black representation on Star Trek has come super far. Like you were saying, you know, we had some representation in the form of like Nichelle Nichols' character on the original series, um, which had, I think, the first interracial kiss on screen, um, is very known for that. And um, I know that that was really groundbreaking at the time. By the time you get to the next generation, you have, you know, and this kind of complicated uh, way of showing race where a lot of the times it's being explored through these alien races and not directly on screen. Um, you also have like Klingons, for example, like Worf, who are a lot of the time originally coded Russian, but eventually were sort of coded black. A lot of the time then you have characters like Jordy, who for me was like super influential as a kid. Like that was one of my heroes. Mm. Um, I think again, Deep Space Nine was a really big turning point where you had your first black commanding officer and also black captain when um, uh, Cisco is eventually able to pilot the or be the captain of the Defiant. Mm -hmm. And that was a very groundbreaking role because it was not only like this huge thing of a, of a Black captain, um, but also a Black father on screen. A lot of the times when we see Black families portrayed in media, they're portrayed as fatherless, right? And um, Cisco was a single dad who loved his son, who talked around these really complex issues, whether it be sort of like what we would now call toxic masculinity, facing the world as a Black person, being proud of your culture, being proud of your heritage. Um, he took so much of that on screen. And that was a very intentional choice by Avery Brooks, the actor who played Captain Sisko. He actually is on record many times as saying that was the reason he took that role, was mm. to be a Black captain for young Black kids to see and a Black father for young Black kids to see. Wow. And actually, this is... Um, I think one of the things that is so special about this also comes out in one of the episodes we're going to talk about today, which is Far Beyond the Stars. In that episode, the idea of a Black space captain is so unimaginable to white people and a very hard thing for even Black folks to imagine that something that this character, Benny, who's also played by Avery Brooks and is Captain Sisko, has to fight for. So actually, the, the show was doing something very strong, you know, that's also reflected in the material of the show. Um, since then... You know, there was some Black representation on Voyager, like Tuvok was a Black Vulcan, although his character, I think, had more potential and then was really able to, like, be lived out through the storylines. Today, with the current Star Trek shows that are, you know, on TV or online, um, we're in an almost totally different era of representation. You have Michael Burnham, who's the main character of Discovery, and we got to, in the last episode, see her do a little bit of captaining. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have, in Lower Decks, Black representation, in terms of both the main character of that series and the captain of um, the, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on the name of the ship. Oh, me too. Um, um, 
Cerritos. Cerritos. Cerritos, yeah. yeah. So like, yeah. So yeah, the captain of the Cerritos and the main character of that show are both black, which is kind of like actually in this cartoon, we're almost getting more representation than we've ever had before. And also I, th- I was uh, just to track back to Discovery. Discovery is engaging blackness in really interesting new ways that I think are also super exciting. Whether it's seeing the way Michael Burnham's hair tends to like reflect her character and the place where her character is, which you don't actually get to see a lot in TV. You know, certain times, like we know that time has passed in the current season because she has these like beautiful box braids now that are totally different <laughs> than the hair at the beginning. And that actually is a lot of, takes a lot of thought on a production level to even pull that out. So we're seeing black issues and representation taken even more seriously than they have been in the past. Yeah, that's so cool. And you mentioned Far Beyond the Stars, so I guess Mm -hmm. it's a good time to turn to that. Yeah, that's one of two episodes that we're going to use today as launching off points to talk about these social justice issues. And Far Beyond the Stars is just one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. I watched it again in preparation for this interview and my god it has a high replay value because i had i had watched it actually just a few months ago too and you know i think it's it's got a lot to do with the fact that you take these characters out of the station and bring them into this very unique historical setting you see the actors out of their costumes and their makeup and it's such a powerful and gut-wrenching story that never fails to bring me to tears so let me quickly just recap the plot of this episode for the listeners um so we're in season six of deep space nine and it's the middle of the dominion war and Captain Benjamin Sisko is basically just feeling the entire weight of the Alpha Quadrant on his shoulders. And when his friend, Captain Quentin Swafford of the USS Cortez, is deemed missing in action, Sisko says, Dad, just say it, son. I don't know how much more I can take. I don't know how many more friends I can lose. Every time I achieve a real victory, something like this happens and everything seems to turn to ashes. And I feel like the fight for racial justice in America can certainly feel like this, you know, this this kind of hopelessness at times. Um, so in this episode, Benjamin Sisko begins to hallucinate and starts to dream that he is a black science fiction writer named Benny Russell, as you just said, living in New York in the 1950s at a time where there was just blatant racial divide in America. And it turns out that this whole dream was basically the prophet's way of telling Cisco to keep fighting that good fight, that your cause is important, that the journey will be hard, but it will be worth it. And although this episode first aired in 1998, it is still so shockingly relevant today in the year 2020. Um, You know, I want to open our discussion, Rebecca, with the police brutality that we see in Far Beyond the Stars. In this episode, Benny Russell gets into two scuffles with the cops um, who are portrayed by Mark Alamo and Jeffrey Combs, the actors who play Dukat and Wayun, the villains of Deep Space Nine, which I thought was just so perfect. Um, So the first time the cops accost Benny Russell on the street, for literally just walking past them for like no reason whatsoever. And for many of us who are not black, this is something that we like literally never have to worry about. So Rebecca, can you speak to this unique dynamic between black Americans and the police that exists to this day and remains hidden and in the shadows of consciousness for so many non-black citizens? Yeah, well, I think this year has been sort of a watershed moment in revealing that sort of dynamic to a lot of people who weren't aware of it before. But um, we know that in the United States, the history of our police force is deeply tied to two things. One is um, slave patrols uh, that formed to catch runaway slaves. And many of those were reformed later as police departments and also posses that had um, been targeting and killing native people. So the, the genesis of policing in the United States is the same as the genesis of our ideas of, of who is an American and who isn't and who needs to be controlled and who's allowed to walk free. And there's a reason that both Black and also Native Indigenous people are some of the most targeted by, um, you know, prisons and policing and police brutality. And, um, you know, one of the, the things that we see in this episode is the police aren't just there to sort of solve crimes necessarily. Like these are two detectives that are harassing um, Benny, um, but they're there to sort of police the bounds of, of who can be in certain places and who can do certain things. And in the case of this story, dream certain dreams. You know, Benny is stopped 
um, they pick up a drawing of Deep Space Nine. And that is sort of right. like the illustration that his story is supposed to be based off of. Yeah. And this story where he writes about, you know, this black space captain that is so impossible for like his white publishers to wrap their heads around. And so for me, that was very powerful of not only is he being policed in this very extreme way, but it's even his ability to dream that is being policed. When you look at the interactions of the police and young black men, also young, you know, other people of targeted groups, so much of what happens goes above and beyond simple law enforcement to really just this feeling of, I can't even be out in public and be safe. And that is why black parents have what they call the talk with their kids where, you know, and this happened to me too, where you learn there's a certain way that you have to talk to police. You cannot talk back. You have to always appear submissive and like unthreatening. Otherwise your life is in danger. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really important to remember when people are talk are confused about like, why are there protests right now? Why are people acting out violently? Why can't they just respect the police? If anything, black and brown people are going out of our way to respect the police, because if we appear like we don't, they have an excuse for having killed us. And um, that is something that I think you never have to think about if your relationship with the police is that they're the people coming to help you and not a threat to your life. Right, right, right. And and that fear that, uh, you know, black and brown people might be uh, injured or worse killed actually plays out in this episode. In, in the second meeting with these detectives, we actually see those detectives committing police brutality in, in action. Benny's friend Jimmy is shot dead for merely trying to break into a car. And when Benny tries to help Jimmy, uh, who is Bleeding to death on the street, the two policemen start to beat Benny up in public. And because of real life instances of police brutality, people have been calling American police forces to be defunded. And Rebecca, I was hoping that you could speak to us about this issue, but also like what does the movement to defund the police actually mean? Yeah, so defunding the police has been sort of a really common demand or catchphrase that has been popularized in the current protest movement, but existed for a long time, especially among people who are what we call prison abolitionists. And this is an idea that just like slavery was abolished in the U.S., we have to abolish our prison system and our policing system as we know it. One of the steps to do this that um, is maybe not taking to that furthest extent, but is an step towards reducing the role of police in our communities is defunding the police. And the idea behind that is that we're taking some of the funding away from police budgets, which we know have exploded over the past few decades. And a lot of that money is spent on like military equipment and things that really only serve to escalate um, tensions on the streets and taking that money and putting it back into the community, putting it into schools, putting it into mental health services, because we know that a large majority of the people killed by the police are people experiencing a mental health crisis. And if you have someone else you can call who's equipped to de-escalate these situations, who's equipped to give people the mental health or medical treatment that they need, you remove the need for the police in those situations. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing across the country calls to do just that, to take some of that money away from police forces and put it towards these other things that we've sort of made police responsible for when they really are not the best people to handle those situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've definitely seen police officers, you know, walking the streets or at airports or whatever, and they're like fully dressed in this like very militaristic uniform with these rifles or like actually probably more like machine guns that are like completely unnecessary for these public spaces. And it's so true that our, our police is militarized beyond belief and that a lot of that funding should probably go into, like you said, these other social institutions that can get really at the, the root of some of the issues that we have in our society. Let's now turn to Benny Russell's relationship at work. So once again, he's a Black science fiction writer whose Blackness is being hidden from the world through the censorship of both his own Black identity as a writer and also the inclusion of Black characters in his science fiction stories, which are constantly being, you know, the editors are constantly trying to write them out. And the editor of Benny's magazine uh, criticizes Benny's Deep Space Nine story by saying, Don't waste your time. You, get back to work. Ray, wait, Mr. You too, Pat. Roy. Douglas, you're not going to stand there and tell us you don't like this story. Oh, I like it all right. It's good. It's very good. But you know I can't print it. Why not? Oh, come on, Benny. Your hero's a Negro captain. The head of a space station, for Christ's sake. What's wrong with that? People won't accept it. It's not believable. 
And men from Mars are. Stay out of this, Herb. And like you were saying um, just a few minutes ago, I think that this this really shows that there is a, a force trying to clamp down on people's dreams and imaginations. And this act kind of reflects an expectation during this time period that people of color are meant to be in certain sectors of society and just not in others. So how do you think that America has changed since the 1950s? And to what degree do we still need to work on this today? Yeah, so the um, writers of DS9, when they sort of created this whole concept, were referencing actually a very real history of anti-Semitism, racism, sexism in science fiction publishing. And the character Campbell, I believe is the editor's name, was based on a real editor who had expressed a lot of these views. Mm. And so that's, you know, kind of the genius of this episode is it's, you know, it's a science fiction show set in the future, commenting on both sort of the past and present in that moment. And I think this idea that Benny is sort of like obsessed with really in this episode is the idea of writing for a future, he kind of says at one point. And what he's writing, the future he's writing for is one that isn't defined by white supremacy. And Cisco, who is the the main character of that story, but also um, the person kind of dreaming this, he is that future. I think this is a pretty incredible thing for me to, to see as a Black writer and filmmaker that we, a lot of times we are dreaming dreams that are um, prohibited to us, while at the same time we are living a dream that may have um, been prohibited to past generations. And that's really clear in this episode. And, you know, there is this idea and like the police are part of it, but so are many other parts of our culture of keeping black people in the sort of the space where we're considered to be where we belong, which is subservient to white people. Um, and this happens, you know, in workplaces across the country. One of the really big outgrowths of our current social unrest was um, a lot of workplaces starting to take a look at how are we treating people in the workplace. You know, I've experienced workplace discrimination um, on a racial, so gender basis, and it's something you just kind of have to learn how to navigate, unfortunately. And what's so powerful about this episode for me is someone who is in that position of having to navigate that, having the sort of moxie to dream that dream that has been forbidden for him. And he has that moxie and he goes and he writes his story anyway. In fact, he writes multiple stories about his Captain Ben Sisko of the Starbase Deep Space Nine. And then when they try to publish it, the entire month's issue of the magazine gets pulped because it contained Benny's story about a black Starbase captain. And that's the point where Benny Russell gives this passionate, now very famous speech. It's about my story, isn't it? That's what this is all about. He didn't want to publish my story. And we all know why. Because my hero is a colored man. Hey, this magazine belongs to Mr. Stone. If he doesn't want to publish this month, we don't publish this month. End of story. That doesn't make it right, and you know it. Don't tell me what I know. Besides, it's not about what's right. It's about what is. And I'm afraid I've got some more bad news for you, Benny. Mr. Stone has decided that your services are no longer required here. What? You're firing me? I have no choice, Benny. It's his decision. Well, you can't fire me. I quit. To hell with you! And to hell with Stone! Try to stay calm, Benny. Oh, I'm tired of being calm. Calm never got me a damn thing. I'm warning you, Benny, if, if you don't stop this, I'm going to call the police. You go ahead, call them! Call anybody you want. They can't do anything to me. Not anymore, and nor can any of you. My human being, damn it. You can deny me all you want, but you cannot deny Ben Zisco exists. That future, that space station, all those people, they exist in here. In my mind, I created it. And every one of you know it. You read it. It's here. You, you, you hear what I'm telling you? You can pop a story, but you cannot destroy an idea. Don't you understand? That's ancient knowledge. You cannot destroy an idea. That future, I created it, and it's real. Don't you understand? It is real. I created it, and it's real. 
It's real. Oh, God. You know, let's just talk about that speech for a minute because it's such a powerful bit of acting from Avery Brooks and it drives me to tears every single time. What emotions course through your veins when you watch it, Rebecca? I mean, it really is an incredible performance. And one thing I want to mention is that Avery Brooks also directed this episode. Um, So that's really a reflection of his artistic imprint on this. And it's, it's, I think the most emotional we ever see Cisco, right? And um, it took a black director and specifically Avery Brooks to get it to that place. And for me, you know, I remember seeing it as a kid and being almost uncomfortable because it's kind of like seeing your dad cry or something Mm -hmm. like this authority figure who's always the one who's supposed to be in control and have everything together, just breaking down to the kind of the death of this dream of his. And it is a really powerful moment. And I think now as an adult watching it, I'm also moved to tears because I understand the sort of stakes of that moment. And for me, it really makes me think of my ancestors in the previous generations. For example, my family, my great grandfather was born a slave. Um, my life would have been unimaginable to him. He passed away in the, um, the Great Depression. And so he was someone who had a lot of dreams that he didn't get to see realized. And the pain of that is something that I think it's kind of easy for us to forget living in the future and where we're benefiting from the sacrifices of people in the past. But this is really what the cost of so many years of struggle has been for Black folks. And to see that happen, to be brought to screen on television is rare. To see it to be brought to screen in science fiction is even more rare. And I think it really took like a seasoned actor with the kind of chops that Avery Brooks has, you know, very like experienced theater actor, was worked on a ton of different products. Um, And also like a passion for that story and the writing to, you know, bring that even into fruition. It took all of these things to get this performance. And I think that performance, I've yet to see it matched on television when it comes to this kind of storytelling. It really is. it's, It's a moving and uncomfortable and beautiful piece of writing and acting. Mm -hmm. And as a writer and a filmmaker and an activist yourself, what do those words, you cannot destroy an idea, mean to you? I mean, that's one of my favorite, my favorite lines in Star Trek ever. Mm -hmm. And I think there is this reality that many people around the world are fighting for freedom and many of them are lost in that process. But we have to believe as activists, as writers, as people trying to make our society better, we have to believe that that idea will outlive us because we as people are so limited, but um, the things that we're fighting for are much bigger. And I think, you know, in the case of this particular episode, Benny's story is sort of a prophecy of Cisco eventually coming. And the sort of like, you see this interaction with the, the Bajoran prophets are sort of the wormhole aliens are <laughs> part of this uh, story. And um, he's sort of told later by a character who's played by the same actor who plays Cisco's dad that, right. you know, yeah. you are walking the path of the prophets, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's about having that ability to have faith in your convictions and your principles and what you're fighting for to know that it will out- outlast even you. And even the people who are more, maybe more powerful than you in a moment can never destroy that idea. And the mm-hmm. idea is really freedom. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. That preacher played by uh, the actor who plays Disco's dad tells Benny, you know, write the words that will lead us out of the darkness and onto the path of righteousness. And, you know, Benny Russell really does find a lot of hope in his imaginations of a future where a black man can be the captain of a starbase. And um, so, Rebecca, where do you find your hope? Is it in your writings or do you see it, you know, in certain institutions or certain groups out there or certain fights? Uh, where, where do you find your inspiration to, to keep going and fighting the fights that you fight? I think my inspiration is really just in people and everyday people who want to make a difference. I think we saw with the selection where so much was on the line, what really, you know, changed the path of our politics was people, everyday people in places like Georgia and places like Philadelphia and places like Detroit and Milwaukee, right? Coming out and making sure their vote was counted in the face of intense voter suppression. When I'm doing my work in Israel and Palestine, the people who are making the most difference there aren't politicians. They're not even like the big nonprofit groups we all think about. It's everyday people who show up every single day to make sure that people aren't going hungry, that people have a safe place to sleep at night 
that there's an intervention when racism happens. And I think that's really what keeps me going. It's the knowing that we're not individuals in our own little bubble and one of us is gonna become that great leader who changes everything. It's that the only thing that changes anything is the collective action of lots of different people coming together to make a decision um, to make a change. I love that. And what a great segue to the next episode that we're going to talk about, Past Tense, where it's all about that collective action. Um, but before we get on to that, is there anything else from Far Beyond the Stars that really resonated with you that you wanted to say? Yeah, I think there's a line that just sticks with me. Um, you are the dreamer and the dream. Ah, yes. For me, this is really humbling. And it speaks to that relationship between Cisco and Benny. Like Benny in one way is Cisco's kind of escape from his current moment to process the difficult things that he's going through to sort of remind him that there are people who lived their whole life and never saw their dream come to fruition. Mm -hmm. But Cisco is also Benny's wildest dream. Cisco is a representation of that future um, that he can only dream of. And even then it is discouraged from even dreaming it by everyone around him. And so I think for me, it's this reminder of the incredible conversation between past and future and present that we're always in. There are people who could barely even dream of someone like me living my life, you know, from my ancestors who were born into slavery or on the Jewish side, experienced tremendous anti-Semitism and pogroms and violence in Europe. For those people, I was, you know, a far off dream that could hardly be imagined. And for everything that I'm struggling for, whether it's human rights, racial justice, or having a livable planet for my kids, um, <laughs> I have to remember that there are people who will look back that I'm dreaming of now, right? So that's yeah. really what I take away from this episode. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I love that. I love that you honed in on that you, you, Rebecca Pierce, are also both the dreamer and the dream. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's move on to past tense. Uh, and so let me quickly recap this episode for our listeners. Um, this is actually before Far Beyond the Stars. So it's uh, in season three of Deep Space Nine. And it's one in which the crew is returning to Earth and they're about to beam down to Earth. But then, of course, they experience a transporter accident and they do beam down to Earth. But Earth in the year 2024, where Cisco and Bashir find themselves in a so-called sanctuary district in San Francisco. Uh, and a sanctuary district is a sort of region in the city which is walled off for placing the jobless and the homeless and the derelict. Every building we go to is the same story. They can't all be full. Don't be so sure. One of the main complaints against the sanctuary districts was overcrowding. It got to the point where they didn't care how many people were in here. They just wanted to keep them out of sight. And once they were out of sight, what then? I mean, look at this man. There's no need for him to live like that. With the right medication, he could lead a full and normal life. Maybe in our time. Not just in our time. There are any number of effective treatments for schizophrenia, even in this day and age. They could cure that man now, today, if they gave a damn. It's not that they don't give a damn. They've just given up. The social problems they face seem too enormous to deal with. Oh, that only makes things worse. Causing people to suffer because you hate them is terrible. But causing people to suffer because you have forgotten how to care that's really hard to understand. Uh, and this is sort of like a cautionary tale about the future, which like, again, it's 2024. So <laughs> it's a future that's not too far away. Uh, and so this episode, you know, deals with a lot of the uh, social economic disparity in America. But I think it's worth mentioning that socioeconomic status and racial identity are not completely decoupled in America today. Um, Rebecca, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, well, this episode, and, and we'll get into it, is all on the mind a lot these days, in part because we're not so far away from it, also in part because I live in San Francisco um, <laughs> and can kind of see the conditions, you know, that this uh, episode is really referring to. But of course, you know, part of the project, for example, of prisons is also removing people's rights um, when it comes to voting and when also when it comes to finding work after, um, mm. after you've been released. It's very hard for people who've been incarcerated to um, get a job. And we know that through a number of different factors, whether it's education, workplace discrimination, um, just like where people are able to live and um, you know have their lives, 
there's a tremendous amount of disparity economically um, along racial lines. And of course we see in San Francisco, like black people who are almost being driven out of the city in, in tremendous numbers. I think we're something like 3% of the city at this point mm. um, are overrepresented in the homeless population. Yeah. And um, most homeless people in San Francisco at one point had a home or lived in, in a home in San Francisco which I don't think a lot of people realize. No, I Um, did not realize that. Yeah. And in COVID, you know, all of these disparities are are so much worse. You know, people, tremendous amount of people, millions of people across all kinds of different communities have lost their jobs. We're not getting the stimulus that we need that um, really COVID relief that any other industrialized nation is finding a way to give to its citizens. Even some of the more like right-wing controlled ones like the UK right now has a Tory government and they're still doing a better job, at least at like, giving people stimulus and um, funds to survive. We're, we're, you know, we're in the middle of sort of a depression right now where mm. Jeff Bezos is, is making more money than he has ever made in his career off of COVID and millions of people are going hungry and at risk of losing their housing. Mm. And when we're talking about this episode in particular, there's a meme going around now that's like we're only three years away or only four years away from the bell riots. Yeah. Um, so people are actually kind of, which are as a reference to this episode. So people are actually are kind of making those connections. And um, I think looking at this episode now is a really interesting opportunity to think, how do we make the next four years different so that mm-hmm. we don't end up in this position? You mentioned the Bell Riots. And essentially, this is a, a moment in American history, according to Star Trek in the Star Trek timeline, uh, which Cisco says is one of the most violent civil disturbances in American history. Basically, what happens is that a group of demonstrators in their sanctuary district in San Francisco take some of the security guards hostage in order to effect change. And the government ends up sending in troops to restore order, which, you know, flashback to maybe some of the things that happened this past summer. And basically, 2024 in the Star Trek timeline in America is a police state. And you know, Rebecca, do you see any parallels between this police state that Star Trek depicts and the kind of society that we might be living in today? Definitely. I think the intense economic disparities that we're seeing right now, um, the sort of tech upper class in the Bay Area, uh-huh. that has definitely played out uh, very similarly to this episode. And also the, the issues with policing, you know, prisons and policing have exploded over the past few decades due to things like the you know, 1990s crime bill. And also just the fact that these are very profitable businesses. So it's not really that hard to imagine a future where like these issues of economic instability for people have gotten so bad that they're kind of being corralled into like walled off places. We're not, we're already not that far away from that when you look at how houseless people are treated. And I think um, in terms of the police state element of this, where people are, you know, Cisco and um, Bashir are stopped on the street and they don't have any ID and that's why they're thrown into the sanctuary district. Um, there are already laws in, in practice that are very similar to that. There was the papers please law in Arizona that was meant to target undocumented people that if you were caught without your papers, you could be at risk for deportation. Mm-hmm. You couldn't prove you were a citizen. Um, we have policies like stop and frisk um, in New York City, which has been scaled yeah. back, but still exists in a lot of forms around the country where the police can just decide to search people and the people they decide to search are, of course, overwhelmingly black and brown people. And if you're found, you know, in a place where like, for example, marijuana is still illegal, if you're, if you're caught doing that, you could have been doing nothing else wrong, but you're all of a sudden you're going to jail. So we do live in a society already where people are being hyper-policed and that has, it does have the consequence of you can end up locked up behind a wall. Right now that wall is a prison wall or the US-Mexico border wall, but that is really the conditions that we're living in right now. And it's very kind of haunting to see that in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so these bell riots occur because people just got so fed up with this terrible system. And it was their vehicle to let people outside of those walls know what was going on inside of those sanctuary districts. So this brings up the idea of protest movements. Um, so Rebecca, as somebody who's very well versed in history, can you just remind us about some of maybe the most important protest movements in history to your mind and and what were the causes that they were fighting for? Um, well, I think one thing that's interesting about this is it's not just that they decided to start protesting. They, they were planning to for a long time, right? There are char- there's a character who's a, a father who wants to have a peaceful protest that gets sort of preempted by the riot. What actually starts the bell riots is a guard in the sanctuary district killing 
a person who's incarcerated there. And right now we're living through a movement that is almost exactly the same thing. Like the Black Lives Matter protests of this year, which were, you know, protesting the, the killing of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor. That is a defining moment in, you know, this year, obviously, but around the world, it actually sparked these protests. Like there were people in, you know, once this got it started, there were like people were taking down Confederate statues and colonial statues. There were people in, England taking down slave trader statues. There were people in New Zealand taking down statues of you know British colonizers who had mistreated the Maori indigenous people in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. There were protests in countries all over the world. So I really think that Black Lives Matter, which as we know, isn't just about one moment. This is something that's been going on for years after the killing of Michael Brown, after the killing of Trayvon Martin. I think this is really one of the defining movements of our time. And you know, prior to that, you had a tremendous organizing history in the U.S. that often gets forgotten. We have incredible um, organizing at Standing Rock just a few years ago. And I think that that was a precursor to not just like the indigenous resistance that we're seeing now, but also that was a fight against an oil uh, pipeline that was being built on indigenous land. Mm. Um, And now we're in this moment where climate is such a pressing issue for all of us. And so this indigenous resistance movement was also in many ways a movement for like collective survival in terms of stopping these pipelines. And it's hard to sort of like say like what's the most important movement around the world. But I think what always really makes me feel very heartened is to see the way that especially in this global moment where everyone has or many people have access to the Internet, phones, cameras and all this stuff. We're seeing a movement that can start in a place like Minneapolis or you know, another American city can lead to something that has people protesting, you know, in Nigeria right now, there's anti-police brutality protests happening, right? There's the whole world is almost in conversation. And I think that is really beautiful and exciting. And we talk about like Star Trek, this idea of, first of all, Earth had to be united and then the rest of the planets have to come into the Federation. Yeah. When I think about like, how do you even get to a place like that? It starts with global people's movements, actually. I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but that's what I think of when we're talking oh, it, about this stuff. It more than answered it. That was that was fantastic. You know, a lot of these movements uh, start in response to some kind of injustice in the world, and different circumstances obviously require different levels of response. From an activist's standpoint, when when is the right time to decide to hold a protest? When is the right time? to stage a riot? When, when is the right time, if any, to take hostages? How do you decide what level of response to take to an injustice? I think that's a really hard question. I don't necessarily have an answer because, you know, or a simple answer. What this episode does very well of exploring um, is sort of like when Cisco decides that he needs to be involved. Yeah. And it's really that he knows that there's something that needs to happen that no one else is going to do. He has to be the one to do it. So when the real Gabriel Bell is killed protecting Cisco, he takes on his identity and he knows that he has to, whatever happens, he has to do what he can do to keep the hostages safe and um, make sure that history happens the way it's supposed to happen. Obviously we don't have the guidance of knowing what comes next <laughs> when we're making decisions, right, like right. what's the right time to protest, what, what forms of protest are, you know, the right ones to choose. I think similarly to what's happening now, you know, you saw in that episode where like people really wanted to peacefully protest And then something happened that, you know, the incident of this person being killed by a guard that just made everything go out of control. And the Mm -hmm. riot wasn't a planned thing. It was people's sort of sudden response to this moment. And what Cisco and his crew did in that moment is, um, you know, they saw that there's this hostage situation. They don't really want there to be a hostage situation, right? But they take responsibility for it because they know why it's happening. You know, Cisco is often a very conservative kind of voice in Star Trek when you see him interacting, for example, with Bajorans who like really want revenge on Cardassia. He's always kind of like, let's hold back, let's tow the Federation line. That's usually his position. Mm-hmm. In this episode, he really says, now is the time when things need to change and I'm the one who has to be responsible for that. And I think that's the best thing that we can really do is say, there's something happening, it's out of our control. How do we respond and how do we model the kind of society we wanna live in? So he takes this hostage situation, which was created by someone else, one of the more sort of like, I would say maybe like self-serving characters in the show, who's just sort of trying to like look out for his own escape, takes a bunch of hostages. Owen and Bashir sort of take control of the situation so that none of the hostages will be killed. So that the people who are protesting, who wanted to protest are 
front and center when the time comes out to get the message of like, why are we doing this? When that time comes to get that message out to the world, he makes sure that the people um, in the camp who are like looking for jobs and things like this are able to speak. And I think that's really the best you can do. Like we don't have, it's not up to us when people decide to riot really. That's usually often a spontaneous mm-hmm. response. You know, I know a lot of organizers who have been organizing these Black Lives Matter protests this year who really didn't want riots. They wanted everyone to be like safe and de-escalated. But then the, these things started happening and they kind of just had to do what they could to make sure everyone was safe and take responsibility for the situation as much as possible when like you can't really control what everyone does. And so I think it's less a question of like, what is like the right time to protest? What is the right time to riot? What is the right time to do these things? I think like this comes about naturally from like the conditions people are living in. If your conditions are unbearable, you're gonna protest them. You're gonna try and change them. If your protest is attack the police, people might start to riot, right? And then what do you do to like turn that energy into a force for change is kind of the question. And that was a very hard, very hard question to answer, I think. Well, thank you for doing such a good job answering it anyway. <laughs> I realize, yeah, that was that is a that's a, a tricky one. And like you said, it it's not completely in your control, right? It's uh, there's so many moving pieces, so many factors going on. And you, you kind of just have to respond in the in the best way possible to whatever crazy thing happens next. Um so Cisco says that in the Star Trek timeline, the Bell riots ended up being this watershed event for changing the public perception about the sanctuary districts. And finally, the U.S. starts correcting social problems. I think you previously said that you thought that the Black Lives Matter protests this year will be an analogous watershed moment for racial justice. I wonder why you think that's the case now, you know, versus, say, several years ago with the killing of Michael Brown and the Black Lives Matter protests then. What's different about 2020? What's different about this moment? Well, I think COVID actually Mm. is one of the defining factors. And what the coronavirus has done is, is a couple of things. It's made everyone's situation more precarious. So even if you couldn't necessarily relate to the struggle of Black and Brown people before, or, you know, you felt like sort of protected by a certain amount of privilege, that is sort of being stripped away. We're also experiencing a collective moment of kind of like having to change our lives, right? And having to do that for the greater good. So people are, you know, you wear a mask to protect yourself, but also protect other people from being sick. Mm -hmm. There's more of a sort of collective sense of well-being or like need for well-being that that I think Americans had sort of lost with our very individualist culture. That's changing things. Also, everyone is like home or like kind of glued to your devices because we're also isolated. So we're paying more attention to what happens in the world. And then I think because so many people are home from work that it just made it a little bit easier for people to protest, right? Um, it's not so hard to go join a protest in the middle of the day when you're working from home, right? Or when you're like unemployed because your job has been furloughed or whatever. Um, so that's that's been a big change. And also I think this being an election year and the sort of disastrousness of the Trump administration and its policies have made all of these issues much more connected. So we're seeing, you know, people support the actual idea of Black Lives Matter at unprecedented levels, but also people can see that the the system that is causing these, you know, harms to Black and Brown communities is also harming them. And so you have a, a sense of like, actually, we do have a shared interest with each other and we do have things that we can fight for together. And we've already seen the results of that sort of borne out in this game changing election, which was really brought to us by like all these different communities that have been targeted, you know, Trump's anti-Asian xenophobia throughout this has been very damaging for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. His attacks on, you know, Latino immigrants, his crackdown on Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, his Muslim ban policy, and also just the way that he's affected white working class people supposed to be his base, right? All of a sudden you kind of see us kind of coming together to form this almost like captain planet of resistance. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, yeah. That was such a great analysis. Um, And I just have one last question for you, Rebecca. It's something that has always amused me about this particular episode, right? So Past Towns was filmed in the mid-90s, and it was a projection of the status of the world in the 2020s, which we are now in. And something that they got really right was the prevalence of the internet and the importance of information. But something that they got wrong, which they didn't forecast, was the importance of 
social media platforms in particular, like nobody had a Facebook and nobody had a Twitter to tell the world about what was happening inside of the sanctuary districts. And, and so I wonder what role do you think social media plays in our reality today, good and or bad in terms of protest movements and in terms of activism in general? Yeah, I think social media, as we know, uh, it kind of cuts both ways. On one hand, you know, it makes horrible police violence that often happened in the dark that people weren't aware of. All of a sudden you can see a video of what happened to Ahmad Arbery mm-hmm. or what happened to George Floyd. And there's a lot of discussion about like whether or not we should be sharing videos um, and this kind of thing, but it's sort of hard to argue with the fact that they do bring attention to these stories. And that is a very unprecedented, um, it visibilizes, let's say. With that visibilization, there's another end of that, which is, first of all, you know, if there's a video of you posted somewhere at a protest, or if you're the one who filmed an an incident of police brutality, you can be targeted for that. We know the guy who filmed Eric Garner's murder, uh, Ramsey Orta, um, ended up spending a lot of time in jail because he was sort of being targeted by the police. It also, in the same way that it can bring people together in our social movements with hashtags like Black Lives Matter, that started as a hashtag, right? Um, That's a really positive thing. Um, it also is a place where neo-Nazis can congregate, where Trump is able to like use his Twitter to sort of rile up his base. Yes. Um, and that has had uh, tragic results. We see some of the violence against Black communities, um, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting targeting Jewish communities, and all this anti-Asian violence, that some of which has ended up on social media. And a lot of it comes from these sort of like conspiracy theories about the coronavirus or um, QAnon or like these kinds of things. So I think, you know, social media is this kind of double-edged sword. And right now, you know, Facebook and Twitter are kind of being called out at the role that they've played in facilitating the sort of darker end of this, which is that the quickest way to incite against people is, you know, in a WhatsApp group or in a Facebook chat or in a Facebook group, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that would have probably been very hard for them to predict, right? They, they knew the internet would be important and having access to that would be important, but they didn't quite know uh, the, the place culturally that that would take us to. And, you yeah. know, I'm someone who's benefited from having like a large Twitter platform and all this stuff. I can't really wish it away, <laughs> for example. But um, I do think that we are in a moment where we're going to have to have some tough conversations about what is the role of these things in our society. And some of that role is undoubtedly positive. Black Lives Matter, the ability to like learn about protest movements like the Arab Spring. At the same time that social media can be a force for sort of spreading the message of liberation, it can be used by, you know, state governments in repressive ways. And it can also be used by bigoted people who want to spread that bigotry, who adopt it as kind of a megaphone. Mm -hmm. So I think we're in a moment where we're going to have to really examine what is the role of social media in our society. Well, um, I hope all of my listeners at least re-examine who they're following on Twitter and decide to uh, follow you. So Rebecca, if people are interested in uh, knowing more about your amazing work, um, how can they follow that uh, on the internet? So I have a website, it's rebeccapiercefilms.com. And from there, you can find links to my, I have a Facebook page, I have a Twitter page. If you just look up Rebecca Pierce, on Facebook or Twitter, you will find me. And yeah, also the Diasperse podcast is a great way to sort of keep up with my work. I know we're going to have, we're going to start doing like two episodes a month and we have two really exciting ones slated for November that I'm excited to share. Great. I'm looking forward to them as well. Well, Rebecca, it's been a true pleasure to have you on Strange New Worlds. Um, I thought this conversation was just so fantastic. And, um, you know, you've given me a lot to think about and a lot to reflect on in terms of the way I appreciate these two Deep Space Nine episodes and basically all of all of Star Trek and the way that, uh, you know, race and social justice plays out in, in the future that they depict. So um, thank you so much and thank you for being that dream um, that is affecting change in the world. Well, thanks so much for having me and giving me the chance to nerd out about my two favorite things, social justice and Star Trek. (laughs) Wonderful. That was filmmaker, writer, and activist Rebecca Pierce on racial justice, protest movements, and Star Trek. I bet you could tell that I had a blast speaking to Rebecca, whose important work continues to rally, inspire, and spotlight oppressed and marginalized voices in America and across the world. You can learn more about her projects using the link 
to her website in the show notes. And with that, I wish you all a safe and healthy holiday season. I'll talk to you again soon after the next episode of Star Trek Discovery. Till then, see you out there.